So, Jay, is Mr. Sinister actually immortal? That is an interesting question, Miles. Ultimately, it depends on how you define immortality. Whether you're talking about his mind, a specific corporeal body, or some more abstract entity like a soul. Okay, okay, but can he die? Again, die is a word with a lot of potential shades of meaning within a superhero universe. But Sinister himself definitely thought so, or at least enough to make contingency plans. What, like a will or something? More like fail-safes that would transfer his consciousness to one of several potential host bodies with trapdoors for that purpose worked into their genetic code. Oh, was that what he wanted with Cyclops? Cyclops? No, no, that was all about breeding a mutant who could take down Apocalypse. Uh, okay, Gambit then. No, no, Gambit was about fulfilling this time travel paradox and also getting some cool stuff. Then who was Sinister planning to possess? Well, for a while he was thinking about Juggernaut, but that didn't end up working out. Because Kane wasn't a mutant? Because of Kane's hat. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 234 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome once again to Crossover Season! That's right, every year, as surely as the flowers bloom, as surely as Portland is drenched in rain a whole bunch, as surely as, I don't know, climate change gets worse, we have an X-Men crossover! Yay. And that's the thing, we're on Fatal Attractions right now, and it's weird because on the one hand, I have very fond memories of Fatal Attractions. This was the crossover that was coming out when I was full-on buying all the X-Men comics. It was the first crossover that I ever fully bought as it came out, which of course was moderated by the fact that many of the books were late. But still, I was used to being confused. I was an X-Men fan. And at the same time, while a lot of big important things do happen in this crossover, for whatever reason, it feels less momentous than many of the others. Is that the same for you, Jay? I mean, look, my blood is about two-thirds Dayquil right now, so my opinions are strong and entirely arbitrary. Huh. It's it's not the legacy virus, is it? That's like a real big deal at this point in continuity. Uh, nah, I just have a cold. Okay, well, that's probably for the best. Could be micro-sentinels. You remember that one run that Grant Morrison did? It seems profoundly unlikely. That's probably for the best. Anyway... You're starting to sound like my mother, dude. <laughs> Anyway, Fatal Attractions. So, Fatal Attractions was structured a little bit differently than previous crossovers had been. Previous ones would be, you know, each X book doing a chapter of it during the same month or, say, for three months in the case of the Extinction Agenda or Executioner's Song. This one's different. Right. This one, most of the books have standalone stories, although a few follow up in direct sequential order. Um, Wolverine specifically is a direct follow-up to the X-Men issue that's part of Fatal Attractions. It's almost more like, um, Fall of the Mutants, maybe. But it was done in such a way that every month, for six months, had a chapter that came out. Although I think the last two might have been in the same month, but like I said, scheduling was weird around this time. And so, that's why it's been kind of hard to figure out how we were going to cover this. We decided to cover Fatal Attractions in three episodes in a row, each covering two double-sized issues, uh, two chapters. But the fact is, they weren't happening all at the same time the way previous crossovers were, so we're going to have other issues from the books in question happening th that we already covered, 
but won't happen until after certain chapters that we haven't covered yet, but will have happened before certain chapters. So continuity is getting a little weird. Just bear with us, gentle listeners. Fortunately, we are old hands at explaining clusterfucks of continuity. That is, in fact, exactly what we do for an hour every week on this podcast. So it's really just going to be more of the same. What was not more of the same were the covers to these issues, because it is the early 90s at this point in our coverage, and boy howdy is it ever. Every one of these issues had a cardstock cover, was double-sized, and had a little holographic trading card-sized image of one of the characters on that cover, along with a super pretentious quote below it. What's he eat? I want to feed him. (laughs) Nice. So... With that fanciness came an increased price tag. Comics were a buck twenty-five at this point. Yeah, these mothers were three fifty. A little bit more. Still less than what we pay these days, even for a basic issue. You got extra content for that though, didn't you? They were extra long issues, as well as having super extra fancy, not technically removable holographic card covers. As we've mentioned before on the show, both producer Matt Hunter and myself learned that the hard way. Ah. Uh. Now, what was special about this crossover, aside from fancy covers to high price tags, was the fact that it is the official celebration of the 30th anniversary of the X-Men franchise. Oh man, there are so many ways you could have ended that sentence. And I was expecting, like, the official celebration of Wolverine getting his skeleton ripped out, or the official celebration of Ileana Rasputin's death, or something like that, but no. Maybe it was celebrating Australia Day. What do Australians have to celebrate? I still feel so bad about that line, and it's still, like, my favorite line from that first role-playing session we did. I'm sorry, Australia. Also, apparently I pronounced your name weird, and I'm sorry about that, too. No, that's still, that is still, like, my favorite moment in that that whole thing. Like, (laughs) that is still the line whose story I tell to strangers. I don't make very many new friends. (laughs) I'd imagine people just sort of edge away from you in the subways at this point. No, no, it's great. It's a party. Well... Anyway, so we should probably talk about some comics, because there's a lot of content and we don't want to keep you here all day. Or ourselves, for that matter. I mean, I'm good. (laughs) Well, let's go deep into the past, as we summarize what happened previously on X-Men. Before his ostensible death at the end of Claremont's run, Magneto had attracted new followers, the quasi-religious mutant zealots who called themselves the Acolytes and were led by ponytail and evil aficionado Fabian Cortez. Spoiler! Fabian Cortez was actually the one who apparently, but not really, killed Magneto, because Cortez is a member of the Upstarts, a group of douchebags competing to kill the most and most powerful mutants in exchange for an ambiguous prize that keeps changing. Those jerks. Right? Since Magneto's apparent death, the Acolytes have gotten, like, exceptionally into murdering humans, exceptionally brutally. It's genuinely disturbing. Speaking of Magneto, two of his on-again, off-again kids are currently on the government-sponsored mutant team X-Factor. Those are Quicksilver, who was currently Magneto's kid at the time of this crossover, and Polaris, Lorna Dane, who at the time of this crossover was not yet Magneto's kid. Entertainingly enough, those positions have been reversed in modern continuity. Comics, everybody. God damn it. This is why we can't have nice things. Now, X-Force, the super badass, pouch-clad, take-no-prisoners, strike-first, but actually just follow-up to the New Mutants team, they have their own relationship with Magneto. 
Two of X-Force's New Mutants era members, Cannonball and Sunspot, had Magneto as headmaster and mentor at the Xavier Institute after Xavier went to space and before Cable showed up and started shooting everything. Since that time, X-Force has cut ties with Xavier, and their ties with Cable were cut when Cable, also apparently, died at the end of Executioner's Song. So, there's some background. Let's go from there to Fatal Attractions Chapter 1, X-Factor 92, The Man Who Wasn't There. This is written by Scott Lobdell, Joe Quisada, and J.M. DeMattis, penciled by Joe Quisada, inked by Al Milgram and Cliff Van Meter, and colored by Glynis Oliver. Now, J.M. DeMattis, he's a couple of things. One of those things is the guy that wrote that delightful Iceman miniseries where Iceman fights the concept of oblivion. Boy, that was a thing. Uh-uh, fights and hooks up with the concept of oblivion. Like you do. But Jam DeMattis is going to be X-Factor's new writer for, like, the next year after this. Uh, he's also known for being the writer of Craven's Last Hunt from Spider-Man and the Wahaha era of Justice League with Keith Giffen. The Wahaha era of Justice League? Oh, yeah! It's, like, super wacky. It's that one era, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, where Batman flattens Guy Gardner with one punch and everybody, like, bursts out laughing because everybody hates Guy Gardner and it's kind of great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the hologram card that came with this issue was Havoc, and the text was Out of the Light and Into Thy Father's Shadow, which implies that the hologram probably should have been Quicksilver. It probably should have been, but I feel like with the dramatic way that these quotes were both written and placed, we should say it differently, like, Out of the Light and Into Thy Father's Shadow. Or like Old Timer Reporter, Out of the Light and Into Thy Father's Shadow. Oh, that's a good option, too. I don't know which one I like better. Uh, listeners, you decide. Take your pick. I mean, you're probably going to get them both anyway. <laughs> There's that. So, where do we start in this joy-filled, happy, wonderful story? We start at a hospice where the Acolytes, in a moment of exceptional thoroughness, have shown up to kill the terminally ill patients. Oh, man, this is like that time the Executioner showed up to kill Mastermind right before Mastermind was going to die anyway. Yeah, but, like, on a larger scale and somehow even sadder and more egregious. Well, and the Acolytes aren't just killing the dying patients at the hospice. They're killing all of the staff as well, all of the nurses and doctors. And, God, the way this is portrayed, the way Quesada draws it, it is it's just horrifying. It's just straight-up genuinely horrifying. One of the nurses in particular, the one whose narration opens the issue, got attacked by Senyaka. He's that guy with the hood and the whip who had a fancy action figure. And he uses his energy whip to strangle her. And we see her in her hospital bed at death's door with just these brutal, brutal, like, burn rope marks covering her from, like, the bottom of her face to the top of her chest. And that image really, really stuck with me as a child, especially since that nurse then very shortly thereafter, after wondering how someone could do something like this, flatlines. Like, this book is not afraid to sell the darkness. So, Miles, you're not the only one who was pretty upset by the Acolyte's decisions. Scanner, actually one of the Acolytes, was too. But Fabian Cortez shouts her down and insists... Don't you see? They're genetically linked. One mind, one heart, one soul. Twisted, evil, full of hatred for all that's different. I don't know, it still seems pretty dubious to me, and it also still seems pretty dubious to Quicksilver, who thinks it's pretty fucked up, and Quicksilver's objection is in fact also part of Scanner's concern, because Quicksilver is Magneto's son. He is, 
at least to the Acolytes, Magneto's heir apparent. His opinions count. And those opinions have started to be formed because X-Factor, including Quicksilver, has showed up at the hospital to check out the aftermath and see what needs to be done. But Cortez has a plan. He says this isn't going to be an issue. Quicksilver is going to be theirs by nightfall. Spoiler. Nah, not really. Now, in the meantime, X-Factor has one acolyte prisoner, and that is the unfortunately named Spore. S-P-O-O-R, not S-P-O-R-E. Who thought this name was a good idea? I do not know. I can assure you that it was not me. Spore doesn't really want to be cooperative. He's a great big furry jerk. But as soon as Quicksilver happens to walk in, Spore goes all fanatical and starts yelling about the sun, the sun. But like sun with an O, like he's not a vampire who's going to get burned or anything. I mean, he might also be. We don't know. Yeah, maybe that's why he's so furry. It protects him from the harmful rays of the Daystar. Oh, man. The plot thickens. Anyway, because Quicksilver is there, Spore spills all the details of the Acolyte's upcoming mission. They are going to be hitting a military installation called Cape Hayden, which I looked up and which is definitely not a real place. And Val Cooper heads off to meet them there with Quicksilver and, weirdly, with the mercenary Random and leaves the rest of X-Factor behind. X-Factor's totally not into this, but thankfully, they have a secret metal spaceship thingum that Forge built them, and so they follow clandestinely. And on the way there, in addition to Guido losing his lunch because he gets airsick easily, they meet up with a new character. A character that we've seen in X-Men Unlimited number two, but one that was supposed to appear here for the first time. That is Exodus. Bennett de Saint-Pierre is going to be a big deal in the Acolytes for a very, very long time. In fact, he's going to be the one who keeps the group going well into the mid-aughts until they finally disband, I think, around 2008. He's also, at this point, the only one of them with direct connections to their leader, Magneto. Magneto, who is, as is no surprise to anyone who's been paying any attention, actually back from the dead. As usual. Exodus shows up, stares at X-Factor's airplane, seems to have an internal conversation, and then flies off. Honestly, I've seen how X-Factor operates, probably for the best. This is him going, you know, do they, do they deserve to join us in Avalon? But do we really want them to? Are they going to do that? Do we really want Madrox and Guido? I mean, Guido's puking everywhere, and Madrox, in addition to dying of a legacy virus, is just a pain in the ass. I say this to someone who loves Madrox. Do we have to bring all the dupes? <laughs> so Exodus heads off, and that is actually the only direct, or for that matter, indirect, contact we get with Magneto here in this crossover that's about Magneto. Obviously, this issue right here is about the shadow Magneto left over the world and over the Acolytes, but it's kind of a weird way to start this event and not even have the center of it in the first chapter at all. Oh, I actually didn't even get that at first, because he disrupts the magnetically driven ship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or maybe they just stop so they don't run into him. One of the two. Anyway, at Cape Hayden, Val and company are confronted immediately by Senator Kelly in what looks like Rom Space Knight armor. And Senator Kelly, who takes a very hands-on approach to governance, is, is protecting the new Project Wide Awake, a name you may recognize from the epilogue to Days of Future Past. Yeah, this was the governmental program that in theory was going to lead to Earth-811, the government uh, taking command of Sentinels, which would then hunt down mutants and would also screw up all of society and all of the world. But this version of Project Wide Awake is maybe even scarier, because these Sentinels have been merged with Nimrod technology. Oh, shit. 
yeah, the Sentinels that came back from the future and are like way more dangerous and sometimes disguise themselves as uh, charming men that hang out with families. And then there's amulets and Kulan Gath. Anyway, that was a long story. See a previous episode of the podcast. But point being, these Sentinels, in addition to being significantly pinker than the old model, have the potential to kill a whole lot more mutants. What's just as mind-blowing is that Val has known about this from the start and just hasn't considered mentioning it to X-Factor. And once X-Factor shows up, they are justifiably pissed off. Quicksilver, though, has a surprising take on the whole thing. I understand the psyches of the Acolytes and their kind far better than you, or Val, or Senator Kelly ever could, because the blood of their savior runs in my veins. You know, I've raised me, make no mistake, I am Magneto's son. And my inheritance has been a grisly one. I know the broken heart that curses homo sapiens with every angry beat. I know the twisted mind that takes pride in being called an evil mutant. I'm not going to explain or debate the forces that create such men, that drove me to such desperate ends, because the only pertinent question is, do these men exist? And if they do, do humans have a right to protect themselves from them? In whatever way they can? And this is surprising. Pietro has been so dismissive of humans, probably more than any other member of X-Factor. But when it comes to them being scared of evil mutants, I mean, keep in mind, Quicksilver's first appearance was being bullied by Magneto, being stuck against his will on Magneto's evil team because Magneto saved the Scarlet Witch. Yeah, the only thing Quicksilver hates more than, like, everyone as a whole is Magneto. Seriously. Well, it's not a party yet, so the Acolytes pick this moment to indeed start that attack that sports hold X-Factor about. And since this is a book called X-Factor and somebody has to do it, they smash their way through the wall to get there. <sighs> that takes me right back. Now, while everyone else fights, Cortez has a chat with Quicksilver, who could not be less interested in joining up with the Acolytes or following in Magneto's footsteps. The fight itself has some interesting stuff, though. There are conflicts both physical, like when John Lizard Mellencamp tries to gouge out Madrox's eyes, and Madrox does a familiar trick, sticks his hand inside John Lizard Mellencamp's mouth, and makes Mellencamp explode, like, really, really gruesomely. Uh, by making a dupe in him. Yes, by making a dupe in him. I guess there are many ways to make people explode. Uh, this is the one Madrox does a couple <laughs> times. He did that to Dick Chalker, Carnivore, back in that X-Factor annual as well. There are also conflicts, social and psychological. Havoc and the Acolytes are yelling at each other. Havoc says the Acolytes are hypocrites because they're acting like the Nazis that oppressed their, their Lord Magneto. And one of the Acolytes, Javits, points to the Sentinels and says, hey, they're just trying to prevent the next Holocaust with what they're doing. So basically, everyone is right and everyone is wrong and everything is terrible. And eventually, the Acolytes basically storm off and Cortez... Actually, no, I think it's Amelia Vote who says, well, maybe we were just trying to plant a seed of doubt in Quicksilver's mind, which is weird because that's literally what Val was supposed to be doing before when she was possessed, which she abruptly ceases to be now. And nobody is impressed. And if the seeds of doubt are planted, they're more planted by the stuff that she did that had nothing to do with the possession, like not mentioning the Sentinels to X-Factor. There is that. X-Factor is pretty damn pissed. But yeah, the possession thing is weird. So you remember at the end of X-Factor 87, a bunch of colorful trash bags burst open, revealing weird toothy tentacle monsters that attacked her, and she started acting weird after that. So was this, her being possessed by the Acolytes, what Peter David had in mind when he started that plot thread? Is there an Acolyte whose mutant power it is to transform trash bags into tentacle snake monsters? 
I have no idea. I'm going to guess that was going to go in a different direction, but there you go. Yeah, there's a lot of scrambling happening here. One of the things that they do go out of their way to make really clear, though, is that failing to tell X-Factor about Project Wide Awake was Val's decision and Val's alone. And it's that, more than anything else, that clearly continues to undercut Quicksilver's faith in humanity. Yeah. Which is to say, nothing actually changes that much. Bringing us to X-Force number 25... Back to front. This issue is r- plotted by Fabian Nacieza, penciled by Greg Capullo, inked by Bob Wyacek, Daniel Green, Paul Ryan, Jimmy Palmiotti, Scott Hanna, Kevin Honrad, and Al Milgram, Whew. and colored by George Russos. I actually had a moment there where I was about to ask if you thought that Kevin Conrad was related to Co- Kevin Conroy, and then I realized that that question makes no sense whatsoever, so I uh, rescind it. See figure one, Dayquil. The holographic, non-removable card on the cover of X-Force 25 is, of course, Cable, because Cable's coming back to the team. We'll get to that a lot shortly. The cover text, maybe we can each do our version again, Jay? Sure, let's see. Home is the warrior. Behold now, the Exodus. Or alternately, home is the warrior. Behold now, the Exodus. Yours sounds kind of like a wizard reading porn. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. I didn't mean it as a compliment. Well, I'm taking it as one. The book opens as a shadowy, mulleted mastermind looks at a grid of, like, I don't know, mutant Facebook profile pics or something. He's talking about how if his own children won't join him, maybe Xavier's will, but we should talk a little bit about a couple of those profile pics. I love that everyone's got those big grids. Like, I wonder if it's the same same program. It's obviously not, you know, internet based because this is this is the mid early early mid nineteen nineties. So I assume it's something you can get on CD ROM at this point. Oh man, my dad got a bunch of National Geographic on CD ROM, and I spent a long time looking at it. National Geographic is actually really interesting. I thought it was boring as a kid, but as soon as they put it onto a CD and I could look at it in a computer, I found out it was great. I feel like that is a really good summary of your brain. <laughs> Probably true. But anyway, point being, we have some of the usual suspects here, just regular old X-Men characters. We also have two new ones, those being Threnody, a woman we briefly saw in Strife's Burn book and will soon be seeing in the X-Men series. Ah, uh, Jesus. So I, I will just say now that Threnody is about 30 pounds of continuity in a 10-pound bag, and um, I am not looking forward to the explosion that's going to come with unpacking that one. Well, there is that. But what I am looking forward to is the other new character appearing in this tiny square as his first appearance anywhere. That's right. Adam fucking X, the motherfucking X fucking extreme fucking that name got away from me, but I'm just going to go with it. Adam X is here. Magneto is looking at Adam X and thinking about recruiting him. Apparently, he decides against it for probably one of about 100 possible reasons. I am pretty sure that this was under the CCA, so he definitely did not have the word fuck in his name any of those times. That's probably true. It's, uh, you know, we're editorializing here. So, who is this shadowy figure with a mullet talking about recruiting Xavier's children if he can't recruit his own? Ooh, I know, I know. Call on me. Uh, Jay, Edidin? Is it X-Man? Jay Edidin, you're expelled. <laughs> wait, 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 no, 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 I've got it, I've got it, let me think, let me think. Um, Strife is Strife. Jay Edidin, I'm retroactively expelling your entire family from their own educations. Damn it. Anyway, it's Cable. I don't know who else to expel. Anyway, X-Force gets back to their base in Camp Verde. They just rescued Rusty and Skids in their last issue. 
but Farrell smells somebody already there, so they split into groups of two to check the base and see who it might be. We see a bit more of X-Force's digs than we've seen before at this point. There's a section of their base with little yellow different graffiti onto the wall. It's the infirmary. There's a weapons rack with weapons labeled things like Ouch Maker. I really love how, like, college dorm room X-Force's base is. It's age-appropriate. That's one of the things I love about post-Liefeld X-Force is, yeah, these kids totally come off as, like, early 20-somethings. This is kind of what we were like, but, you know, way more violent. Okay, first of all, we were not even teens when this came out. But second... And I'm wondering specifically about this. How many of the readers of this comic do you think knew Little Yellow different from the commercials versus from the reference in Wayne's World? Oh, I totally just knew it from Wayne's World. Likewise. Well, the stealthy visitor takes everybody out with zappy stuff, except for Cannonball, who finds as he explores that somebody apparently finished the plans he was drawing up for modifying the base. This is like a very violent Goldilocks. And added a really, really, really long bathtub. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, back in the day you would rent a video game and you'd have to return it and like by the time you got it back when you rented it again uh, maybe somebody had leveled up your characters but they'd also renamed them all Penis it's kind of like that this is this is an experience that I never shared never having owned a video game system or at least not until I was in my late teens but I will take your word for it mm, you missed out on characters that somebody else had named Penis you know I feel okay about that well, after looking at this character named Penis on his plans for the base, Sam finds the person who named that character. I'm just going to keep going with this metaphor. That is Cable. You know, Cable, who apparently died at the end of Executioner's Song, and X-Force went off on their own without a leader, gave Cannonball the responsibility of calling the shots. Yeah, yeah, he's back. Cable wouldn't name your character's penis. Strife would definitely name your character's penis, but I bet Cable would name them all after his guns and give them, like, really extensive and tragic backstories. Well, that's probably true. But what he's done here is to lightly shoot everyone as he infiltrates the base, because, I don't know, that's just how he shakes hands, I guess. What the hell, Cable? What makes me a little sad is that Cable here does not have the gloriously terrible haircut that he had in the first few issues of the Cable ongoing series, which have occurred by this point. Um, he also has lost the kind of rad and canonically literally evil goatee. So I don't know if we're going to cover Cable 1 through 3, but to briefly sum up, so at the end of Executioner's Song, when he apparently blew himself up, yeah, it turns out he was just sucked into the time stream. Strife apparently was killed. Spoiler, no, he just sort of turned into an evil beard. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but Cable ended up back in his own future timeline where Garrison Kane had been waiting for him since Garrison Kane had gotten new robot arms at the end of the Cable Blood and Metal miniseries. Kane and Cable headed back to the present into their time machine module that was supposed to be on Grey Malkin, Cable's spaceship, but instead was at the bottom of the sea because that's where Sam jettisoned it for reasons we debated for far too long. Do you ever picture Garrison Kane as Michael J. Fox? That's actually really easy to picture, and now I like him way better. Right? Yeah. There was also some stuff about the six-pack, and uh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Point being, X-Force is really surprised to see Cable alive, and they all react in their own different ways because all of these characters are very well realized at this point, including Sunspot and Richter, who are just ready to straight-up murder Cable. Remember, they came onto the team after Cable was already gone. That was part of why they were comfortable coming onto the team at all. But you know what Cable did while he was in the time stream? 
Cable learned to use his words. So this time, Cable's back, but he's actually going to answer their questions and tell them things like, no, as it happens, I didn't kill your father. That was my clone. Or to Sunspot, no, I didn't kill your father either. That was some jerk rich guy in a ponytail and weird metal armbands. I I did kill a lot of people, though, because I'm Cable and that's kind of what I do. But not those dads. Not those particular dads. Probably other dads. And they believe him because they all read Executioner's song. Exactly. But this is going to be a big change in Cable going forward. And I want to talk about this more later after we cover the issue. But this is part of why I'm okay with Cable coming back into this book when I was so enjoying the Cable-less era of it. Because he's changed and he respects how the team has changed. And in a sort of meta way, he seems to respect how the book X-Force has changed. Cable's also pretty insightful at this point. He sees that the very angry Cannonball has pulled back from his whole team because of the burden of leadership, of having responsibility far beyond his age. And Sam admits, yeah, basically that. And they hug. And Cable, once again, uses his words. I'm sorry, Sam, for everything I did to you and for everything I didn't do for you. I tried so hard to be a military leader that... I forgot where I came from. I forgot that soldiers fighting together are more than programmable machines. They're brothers in arms. They're a family. And I want to try to do right by you, son. By all of you. Aw, do you think he and Farron have, like, started a support group and been sharing notes on how to person? Oh, I think maybe they have, and that probably makes Farron even more bitter by the time he comes back in Excalibur number 124, because Cable became a really popular character, and he just fell off the earth for a while. Poor Farron. Now, the senior heroes look at Rusty and Skids, who are still unconscious and still basically packaged up, and Cable says that Strife modded their brains, and in fact, that this is the same thing that Strife did to Cable's son, Tyler. Because apparently when you open the floodgates with Cable, you open the floodgates. So they're going to get all the backstory, whether they want it or not. They're also going to get all the emotional openness. Because Sam points out, hey, you said Tyler wasn't your son. This this contradicts like everything you've told us. And Cable says, yeah, uh, I lied to you to keep you emotionally distant. Like, goddamn, Nathan, you've been attending some impressive, I don't know, radical emotional honesty, nonviolent communication classes. Nice work. Those floodgates are indeed open because Cable also explains about Clan Chosen, the Canaanites, the fact that he came back to stop Apocalypse, not to follow Strife, and the reason he's helping Sam, who was trained by Xavier and Magneto, was in the hopes of having the new High Lord Ascension be somebody with those twin dueling moralities, somebody who'd been taught by the best and then he could help mold, and it just keeps going and going and going. Interestingly enough, this is also where... Apocalypse being Cable's motivation is really set in stone. This page right here. Before he can move on to urges, the junior heroes outside are confronted by none other than Exodus once again. And this time, instead of just sort of a weird little standoff, there is a big fight because it's X-Force. It's what they do. Exodus is very, very powerful with his incredibly ill-defined 90s-tacular energy powers, and so he wins the fight, which means he gets to talk. I come from the primary chosen shelter of the Adam only. I grant you an escape from this asylum called Earth, the harbinger of the magnetic storm, which is to carry you both away from here and lift you to a better place. 
As the sole remaining active participants from Xavier's second generation, I grant only the two of you this boon. Exodus is talking about Cannonball and Sunspot, the only two original or for that matter mid-era new mutants that remain on X-Force. I like the way his language kind of vacillates between religious stuff and like terms of service. <laughs> you know, the ascension of you, the sole remaining active participants under the original end user license agreement of Xavier School version 1.3. Everybody's just going to scroll to the end of Exodus's big speech and click accept. You know it's true. Oh, yeah. Unquestionably. No, they're actually not. Um, Because Sam says, well, we'll talk. But the only way he and Bobby will come is if the other new mutants who are in the group come too. And those are Boomer, Richter, Rusty, and Skids. And they also ask about the other early new mutants. Uh, apparently, though... Exodus already talked to Karma, and she said no, and he hasn't talked to Wolfsbane yet. He's hoping that if he recruits some of the other new mutants, then maybe she'll be more amenable. But this really hammers home just how many new mutants are gone. I mean, Mirage is all the way in fucking Asgard. Magma's in Nova Roma, having weird retcon stuff going on while Firestar's there. And Cypher, Warlock, and Magic are all dead at this point. I, that doesn't mean you can't recruit him. I suppose that's true. This is X-Men. But still, I, I like that this bit's included. I like that there's a nod to the past that both points out that, yes, Nicieza was paying attention to the new mutants who were around, and that makes us remember all the ones who aren't. Now, Sam is not entirely on the level when it comes to accepting this offer, um, as you have likely already figured out. And in fact, he passes a tracer to Cable as, as Exodus takes them away so that Cable and the rest of the crew can follow. And they fly out into space because their eye pack that they got from Grey Malkin is space-worthy. And in fact, speaking of Grey Malkin, as they follow Exodus's energy signature, that's where they end up. Cable's space station that partially blew up but is still mostly intact, that was run by Professor, the technological consciousness that was once inside ship. Yeah, they're there, but it looks like totally different. Did Magneto straight up steal Cable's spaceship? Uncool. Yes, he did, and apparently he remodeled it, because the last time we saw it, it looked like a big heap of scrap metal shaped like a Tetris piece, and now it's much fancier looking, much rounder, much more intact looking. It kind of reminds me of a mag from Fantasy Star Online, like it should just be hovering over the shoulder of like a Raymar or a Phonoworld or something like that. Good work, I guess. Well, anyway... Cable sees this and freaks the fuck out. I mean, this is what he has left from his own past. There, there is a really kind of great moment where someone is 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 asking him why it's a big, it's such a big deal, and Cable points out, "Well, no, my massive orbital satellite base is all I have." And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, but that's a lot, right? Thankfully, Teresa Rourke, Siren, who I feel like we don't talk about much in these podcast episodes, but is a great part of X-Force, she's just kind of the grown-up, is there to be exactly that. You have us, Nathan. We have each other. You must forget about what you lost. Your past is our future. What you had, what you no longer have. It's not as important as making the possibilities happen. Well now, do we sit and stew, or do we move forward? Your X-Force... You can do both. <laughs> you can move forward and stew. Yeah. So 
Back on the renamed, rechristened Avalon, Sam and Bobby and Rusty and Skids follow Exodus in. Now, Rusty and Skids are awake again, so it's time for more of their delightful ranting about Strife's chaos and anarchy and how he's the savior and he'll have his vengeance and all that good stuff. And Exodus is immediately sick of this. How tedious their brainwashed homilies quickly become. To which Boom Boom rejoins, They kind of get used to them. Like Muzak. Oh, Boom Boom, I know your name is officially Boomer, even though I refuse to call you that, but you remain wonderful and that part of you will never change. Hells yeah. They get up there, and a man in a hooded purple robe with a familiar voice uses magnetism to undo Rusty and Skid's brainwashing implants because, you know, magnetism. What can't magnetism do except love? <laughs> so, uh, guess who this guy is? He's in disguise, but Sam recognizes his voice. We have easily figured out who he is, but he's still in his wonderful purple bathrobe. Like, I have to wonder, did X-Force show up while he was in the shower and he had to scramble to get ready? Like, is his, is his wonderful blonde mullet still soaking wet and he's actually all sudsy under there or something? Um, dude, it's his satellite. He can wander around in a bathrobe if he feels like it. Oh, you know, that's a very good point. And he is sort of the messiah figure of, you know, the tiny at the moment, but presumably going to grow cult that is the new Acolytes. So uh, who's going to tell him no? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing this play out right now with X-Men. Oh, that's true. Yeah, in the current Uncanny X-Men, mm -hmm. which, boy, that is going some places. Okay, as we record this, Age of X-Men Alpha is coming out tomorrow. I'm really excited to read it. But when the cavalry arrives, Sam won't let them fight. We can continue to fight back home on Earth for what we believe. That doesn't mean everyone has to. The right to make our own choices, the right of self-determination, is the argument we used against Xavier to gain our own freedom. Who are we to tell others they don't have the same rights? I mean, that's kind of always been your thing, but okay. Yeah, but this whole radical independence thing, like, X-Force has weirdly enough struggled to define itself philosophically initially they were just like the x-men but they you know were more brutal and fought people more but they kind of didn't was the thing for the most part except for cable but this is what they've turned into they've turned into a mutant team that wants to do their own thing and advocate for the ability for other people to do their own thing and to strike first when necessary to allow people that freedom so after magneto's kind of helicopter state and after they're running off what Cable has determined is that the appropriate approach with these kids is basically free-range parenting. No, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very cool. So Cable body slides X-Force, minus Rusty and Skids, who have decided to stay with Magneto after all the shit they've been through, away, and he goes off to retrieve the computer module that contains Professor, his mentor-slash-robot-friend-slash-dad-figure-slash-whatever, and he also goes off to set Grey Malkin to blow up because Magneto has put a bunch of alien technology into it for some reason and he knows he'll never get it back. So if Cable can't have Grey Malkin, nobody can. And man, I was sympathetic to the professor part, but blowing up Magneto's space station after Sam just made an impassioned speech that maybe they should just leave Magneto alone to do his thing, that kind of sucks. Magneto is not so much into this, and Magneto has in fact followed Cable to confront him. And he's, he, he is now fully armored. He's bath, bathrobe no longer. He is in full Magneto gear. And he wants to know if Cable really believes that he, that Cable offers X-Force a better path than Magneto does. You don't get it, do you? They haven't chosen to follow my path anymore. I've chosen to follow theirs. 
Good job, Cable. I love this new Cable. He's emotionally open and honest. He actually communicates. He shows his charges that he cares and defers to them when it's appropriate to do so. And he's realized at this point that he's not perfect, that he's kind of a fuck up, and that these kids know what they're doing, and he just wants to help them be their best selves. You know who does not so much love the new Cable? Magneto. Yeah, Magneto tears him apart. He tears him the fuck apart. Remember, Cable, Cable's basically half robot. And so Magneto just shreds that machinery and Capullo draws it so, so well. It's like what happened to Cable at the end of Executioner's Song, but a hundred times worse. You just see a thin metal skeletal frame left attached to Cable's entire, you know, side. And just metal and machine scraps everywhere. Pools of blood and oil underneath him. It is gruesome and effective. Ew. Seriously. Ugh. One of the things I like about this scene is that the entire time with Magneto in his full uniform, his face is shadowed in his helmet. We don't really see anything but his eyes and his teeth. So here he's not Eric Lenger with his tragic past. He's not Magnus, the old friend of Xavier and the mentor of the New Mutants. He's a supervillain. He's just straight up a supervillain at this point. He's a more sympathetic supervillain than many, sure, but this is a big shift even since the last time we saw Magneto in X-Men Volume 2, Number 3. Yeah, he is Magneto and nothing else at this point. Yeah. Whether you like that or not is kind of up to you. For me, I have mixed feelings. I think it helps that I know that Magneto is going to go back to being more gray and nuanced later, so I'm more inclined to forgive this story. But I could see people reading this at the time being like, what the hell? This isn't what Claremont wanted. On the other hand, Claremont's been off the book for years at this point. And it's it's continued on, and this is definitely the Magneto that the book was building towards in his previous appearances in, in this era. Mm-hmm. And we'll see various facets of our buddy Eric over the rest of the crossover, but in the meantime, Cable, having retrieved Professor, now has the ability to body slide, to teleport again. And so he and his half a body teleport away back to X-Force's IPAC. And Magneto in turn, decides to move on to Xavier's brood, um, and that it's time to offer them Haven. So yeah, there are our first two chapters of Fatal Attractions, in which Quicksilver continues to be a bitter jerk, and in which X-Force meets up with Cable and actually has a great deal of character development. Between the two chapters, I love this issue of X-Force. The issue of X-Factor is a good one, but it just doesn't seem to get to the same level to me. So what do you think about how hard they're they're teasing Magneto coming back? How much they're just sort of dangling that? Because I have a lot of trouble with it. I mean, it's really obvious from so early on what it's going to be. And if it turned out, if it were going to turn out to be a massive twist, I think it would feel more justified. But here it just feels like we've already figured out and they're like, no, no, but wait, wait, what if we give you another clue? And we're like, guys, we, we already know, we already, we already we don't need to buy a vowel at this point. So it's okay. We know who's in the bathroom. We know who just got out of the shower. It's weird. At the same time, they were trying to be very precise about timing because the next chapter in Fatal Attractions, Uncanny X-Men 304, that was supposed to come out, like I think we said earlier in the episode, exactly when X-Men number one came out, exactly the 30th anniversary of that. And so if they wanted to have his big reveal when he fully comes down to Earth and reveals himself to everybody, then I could see that they sort of had to like hold that in check and just do little partial reveals before then. But I agree, it's uh it's awkward. Um that brings us to listener questions. And Lesbian Jubilee asks on Tumblr, 
I've been reading Exiles, the 2001 series, and at one point Mojo tells the Exiles that there is only one Mojo world in the multiverse. Does that mean that there's only one Longshot as well? Only one Shatterstar? That's a really good question. So as it turns out, there are a number of Longshots and a slightly smaller number of Shatterstars. For Longshot, we have one in the Ultimate Universe, who's a major departure. He's like a reality TV star serial killer guy. Very creepy. We have him on Earth-X in a book called Team X 2000, which I'd never even heard of, but now I'm very excited to read based on its title, and a whole, whole, whole lot of what-ifs. Now, whether you count what-ifs as actual continuity is kind of your call, technically they have numbered Earths. They have specific designations within the multiverse, and so any what-if story that features the Mojoverse would imply the Mojoverse split, but for me, they're exactly what the title would say. They're what-if. Now, I was initially thinking that the future where Shatterstar takes over the Mojoverse in the Shattershot crossover could be an alternate, but then I realized, no, that could just be the one true future of the one true Mojoverse. So I think my personal headcanon is that, yes, there is only one Mojoverse, and the reason there are multiple long shots in Shatterstars is that as soon as they leave the Mojoverse, they're not bound by that uh, uniqueness, and they can split off into their own multiverse facets. Well, they don't even have to leave. It's worth noting that not all of those long shots are from the Mojoverse. For example, the Mojo and Longshot of the Ultimate Universe are from regular old Earth. That's a very good point as well. Steven asks via email, It seems like dying is an integral part of being an X-Man, and nearly every prominent character has taken a turn at it. Not counting alternate universe versions, Days of Future Past, or events where everyone dies, the Infinity Gauntlet, who is the most prominent X character you can think of who hasn't died at least once? I mean, does Storm count? I, it depends on whether you count Dallas and the Fall of the Mutants. I mean, I think that's sort of an everyone dies, because they did actually die, but only briefly and were brought back instantly, but everyone else believed they were dead, but we the readers didn't. But there was that time when we the readers did, when Havoc shot down Storm when Storm was fighting Nanny in Australia. But then it turned out that was just a robot duplicate, and the real Aurora was actually fine. Do we count that as a death? I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. That's that's part of what makes it so difficult to answer this question. Right, because like you also have Kitty Pride. She never actually died, but she was phase merged with a giant bullet to save the Earth back in Astonishing X-Men, Joss Whedon's run, and that was basically a death sentence until it wasn't. Um, Havoc got shunted to Mutant X, which, and apparently died in the 616 and then just sort of disappeared for continuity for, from continuity for a long time, but was never technically quite actually dead. Now, the most prominent ones I can think of, and listeners, I'm sure you're going to um actually us on at least one of these, but as far as I can tell, Beast, Gambit, and Iceman have never died, and they're all pretty major X-Men characters. I mean, Iceman did destroy and recreate the entire universe once. Well, yeah, but I don't think I'm going to count that for this question. But yeah, you know, when you actually think about it, an awful lot of X-Men have never died. It's really just a handful who die a whole, whole lot. It's true. Man, if we had a dime for every time Logan died. We would have enough to line someone's skeleton. <laughs> oh man, that would be uh, way less impressive than adamantium, but uh, I guess still impressive. So one of the reasons we have not yet died is that we are a fully listener-supported podcast. And support at certain levels comes with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's hear, as we often do, from the angry Claremontian narrator think you've got it all figured out, do you, Josh Chase? 
You followed the breadcrumb trail all the way to the end, picked up every hint, each clue subtler than the last. Well, aren't you precocious? Too bad we have so many more clues planned. Looks like you'll just have to go sit in the corner with Patrick Chiswick and all the other mutants who were just too smart for their own good. And with that, the mic goes to the freshly out of the shower, Magneto. What is that, Exodus? My former students have accepted my generous invitation to our cosmic refuge, Avalon, and are already here? But I, Magneto, master of magnetism, just got into the shower. Quick, jetty kite, take young Guthrie and DaCosta to the iron filing craft room. Surely drawing magnetic hair and mustaches onto portraits of Charles will occupy them for long enough for me to finish conditioning my magnificent magnetic mullet. Gold digging nanny, prepare the buckyball collection. Shaping those metal spheres into the shapes of the giant guns of which they are so fond shall delay their progress, and buy me time to properly drape my fuchsia bathrobe, as befits the lord of the fatal attraction. Remember, my acolytes, cleanliness is next to magnetism. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Magneto's funeral etiquette leaves much to be desired. Like, a lot. A whole lot. Seriously, don't do that. Thank you.